Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As Paul is writing the epistle to the Romans, it's, it's an interesting situation because as we discover, as we continue through chapter one, Paul's never been to the church in Rome. He's never been to Rome. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He, at the time that he's writing this, which is probably somewhere around 57 AD, he's in Corinth. So he is in the Gentile world fulfilling his missionary mission. He's on his third missionary journey. And yet... He's never made it to Rome. Peter also has never been to Rome at this point, And yet somehow there's a church in Rome. The apostles didn't found this church. The spirit did. And it shows you an interesting dynamic. When you look at the book of Acts, as we were doing not too long ago, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus commissions his apostles to go out and to spread the word. To spread it throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. And sometimes you get this idea that the apostles are sort of like the guys carrying the torch in the Olympics, right? And behind them follows everything else. So there's darkness, and then suddenly an apostle shows up with the gospel, and the church begins to grow. But here we discover something. The spirit is working more quickly than the apostles can. God is moving faster than his servants are so that Paul finds himself in this interesting situation of needing to catch up. He hopes to get to Rome. He hopes to share with them his teaching. He hopes that there will be a mutual benefit from this meeting, but it hasn't happened yet. He's been constrained from getting there, and that's the reason he's writing the letter. He's trying to catch up with them, to introduce himself to them. Paul is the master of long, complicated, run-on sentences. And he's definitely one of these guys who, when he opens the letter, sees no problem in inserting a great deal of theology right up front. This is actually the longest salutation in all of the epistles of Paul. It's pretty complex. Before he even gets to who this letter is written to, he introduces himself, he introduces the gospel, he focuses on who Jesus is. There's a reason for that. He doesn't know these people. He's never preached the gospel to them, and so he needs to lay a foundation. Because in the same way that Paul needs to catch up with them, they need to catch up as well. The Spirit has been working in Rome. The church in Rome has a worldwide reputation for its faithfulness, which Paul commends them on. And yet, they also need to catch up, because they're in a situation that that we can sympathize with. Uh, Sometimes your zeal outstrips your knowledge. The way the Spirit works doesn't always work the way you would think. If the Spirit doesn't first educate you and equip you and then regenerate you. It often happens the other way around, so the Christians often find themselves in the same predicament as someone who is uh, thrown out of the airplane and then finds himself needing to figure out how parachutes work when you would have preferred to get that information first. It's the playing catch-up. So the Romans are in that situation. They have a challenge, and we have it too. They've been called. They have answered a divine call. They've been made into a church. The Spirit is at work. They've been called, as Paul says, called to belong. 
the very end of our text in verse 7, he says, you've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, speaking to the church in Corinth, same idea, but he uses slightly different language. There in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, he says, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You've been called, the spirit is at work, and yet you don't really understand the meaning of that call. You can see the work of the Spirit, but you don't really know what it means, and you don't know how to live out this call in your life. Which means that that as Christians, we're often a lot like uh, Frodo Baggins at the Council of Rivendell. If you remember that scene from the very first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, when all of the heroes of Middle-earth are arguing and basically coming to blows over how they will destroy the ring of power, then there's this touching moment where Frodo, who is the least of them, ends the argument by declaring, I will take the ring. Then everyone sort of looks at him compassionately, and he adds, though I do not know the way. I will take the ring. I feel the call. I see the duty, the responsibility, the draw in my life. I will undertake this journey. I will go on this pilgrimage, but I don't actually know where I'm going. I don't really know how to get there. I don't seem and feel adequate to the task that I've been called to, but I will do it. And it's at that moment where he admits, number one, that he'll do it, he'll undertake the task, but he also has no idea how to do it, that the fellowship is formed. It's at that moment that Aragorn turns to him and says, you will have my sword. And Legolas says, you will have my bow. And Gimli says, you will have my axe, which is sometimes more harm than good. But you get the idea. They're not just handing over their weapons. They're handing over themselves. What they're saying is, I will be your companion on this pilgrimage. I will go with you. I think the reason why the book of Romans has this enduring appeal, comfort to Christians, is that the book of Romans is like a companion on a pilgrimage. Because we, like the Romans, find ourselves answering a call and having no idea where we're meant to go having no idea how we're meant to live this. I surrender all to Jesus, yes, but what does that mean? Where do I go from here? From the cross, how do I move forward? That's the question. And Paul writes this epistle to answer it. The answer to those questions is there. Paul will explain what this calling means. He will explain in deep, profound ways, what the call of the gospel is. He'll do more than that. He'll move from explaining the call of the gospel to explaining how to live it, how to live as a Christian in this world, how to endure this pilgrimage that you've been called to. The epistle to the Romans, in other words, helps us find our way as believers. And my hope as we work through it is that together we will start to find our way we will start to understand more profoundly the call of the gospel, what the gospel means. And also, that we'll come to understand more profoundly how to live it. What does it look like to live the Christian pilgrimage? And what does it not look like? So we have a lot of confused ideas about that. So in this salutation, in this introduction, Paul has a task before him. He's got to lay a foundation in order to build. And a lot of the themes that he will develop at length as we go through the book of Romans, he introduces right here at the beginning. Right from the start, he's trying to get off on the right foot. And there's really two themes 
that you can see Paul insisting on even from the beginning. One of them is divine authority. Paul is always concerned in his epistles to establish the authority with which he speaks. Why should you listen? You have questions. Why should you listen to Paul's answers? He wants to talk about the authority of the gospel that he's proclaiming. But he also wants to talk about the divine origin of the Christian community. So he's going to talk about the divine origin of what is already happening in the church as well. So the authority is divine, and the origin of the community is divine as well. So you'll see Paul answering a series of questions, and we're going to go through in a way that we don't always do, but we're going to go through essentially phrase by phrase here to pull out what it is that Paul is getting at, to to look at the structure of the foundation that Paul is laying, what he thinks is essential to summarize the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at. He's going to tell us who he is. He's going to introduce himself, say who Paul is. He's also going to say, here's the gospel. So who is Paul? What is the gospel? And also, what work does the gospel do? Not just what is it, but what does it accomplish? What does it actually do? Then he'll say, who are you? He'll answer the question, who are you? Who are we? Who are the Romans? Who are we as Christians like them? And what is the gospel bringing to us? All of it is there in a very compressed form in these opening verses of Romans chapter 1. So who is Paul? In particular, what authority does Paul have to speak? He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul is a servant here. The Greek word that's translated servant is doulos, which is also the word for slave. Typically, because in American English, we have a certain idea of like American chattel slavery, we translate this not as a slave, but as a servant to understand this older way of seeing it, a servant of Christ Jesus. But if you want to think about what it means to be a servant of Christ Jesus for Paul, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Abraham was a servant of God. Moses was a servant of God. The Old Testament prophets were servants of God in the same sense. So they spoke with the authority of God, but because they were so fully submitted to him, they were his instruments. That's what it means to be a servant of Christ Jesus. The authority that Paul comes with is not his own. It comes from Christ Jesus. It comes from his Lord. It comes from the one who he serves. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Paul oftentimes has to defend his office of apostleship because it was so unusual. Paul, as we've seen, was not one of the 12 apostles. He was an additional apostle. Paul, you might think of as like the 13th one, the apostle to the Gentiles, a supplement to the 12. Paul himself, when he refers to the apostles, he calls them the 12, not including himself in that number. His story was a little bit different. He had not walked with Jesus in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had been called by Jesus afterward on the road to Damascus. His was an unusual calling, an unusual office. And so, especially, for example, in the epistle to the Galatians, he has to explain it, articulate, and sometimes defend it against criticism. Here he doesn't get into that so much, but he does insist he was called to be an apostle. In other words, the office that he holds is the result of a divine call. So when an apostle speaks, he's not speaking with the authority of personal experience. It's not because he was there and he saw things firsthand, although 
those things are true. He's speaking as a result of a divine call. He's been called to be an apostle. God has made him an apostle. It's not an office that he reached for and grasped at. It's one that God drew him into, which is hard for us to get our minds around because we use this language of calling, but usually we use it as a sort of uh, a metaphor for you called yourself. You know, so you were called into the ministry, and what we mean by that is you really always liked the idea of being a pastor. You wanted to get into ministry, and, and, and at a certain point, that desire that you have needs to be christened with spiritual-sounding language, and so we don't talk about how, how badly you wanted to be a, an officer in the church. We say you, were, uh, you felt uh, called into it. It sounds nicer, but that's not what Paul is saying here. And, and Paul, from his biography, you get, like, Paul didn't aspire to be an apostle. He aspired to kill apostles. He was called into it in the most convincing way, like turned completely around by a divine calling. And that makes a big deal to Paul. He sees the agency of God in all of this in ways that we often don't. When you think of yourself as, as, as taking action, of making choices, of doing things, you're the one who does them. Paul sees behind that the hand of God, the working of God. He is called to be an apostle. He was called to this. And this idea of calling is important in this opening. He was called to be an apostle, which means he was set apart for the gospel of God. Elsewhere, he talks about his determination to know nothing but Christ and him crucified not to have polished oratory, not to impress you with his brilliance, but to be confined, to be owned by the gospel. That's what he's getting, he's getting at here. He was set apart for the gospel. He's dedicated to this message that he's bringing. And again, the message is God's, not his own. This is the gospel of God. Sometimes biblical authors will talk about my gospel. Paul will, will defend his gospel but it's important to understand that that's just a, a figure of speech, a way of speaking, like the message that I, I spoke to you. But the gospel that I spoke was not my own, not of my own invention. It's the gospel of God, set apart to the gospel of God. The authority of the apostles comes from God. Get the idea? This is a man speaking with divine authority. Hence, we should listen. And what he's speaking of is the gospel that he's been set apart for, in particular, the power and authority that that gospel possesses. He tells us a few things about the gospel that are important. He was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the gospel that Paul preaches isn't new. Paul is not involved in creating a new religion. The early Christians are not saying, you know what? We all grew up Jews and we don't like Judaism. We've come up with a better religion. We're going to call it Christianity. And we'd like everybody to convert to that religion instead. Not at all. This is not something new. The gospel is not somehow against the faith that they had grown up in. It is the fulfillment of the faith that they had grown up in. If you want to find the gospel preached with authority, Paul says, you should look to the prophets. If you want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed with power, you should look to the Holy Scriptures. You should look to the Old Testament and find it there. 
we've seen this before, the, the interconnection of Old Testament and New Testament. But Paul is insisting to the Romans at the outset that this isn't new. This is not some novel invention that you've been introduced to. It, it has a history that goes back. This has been going on in God's revelation of himself in Scripture from the beginning. In other words, the gospel is covenantal. That The covenant people of God have not been excluded from this gospel, but are included in it and are simply being expanded. The idea of what that covenant people is is being expanded in the New Testament, not changed. And that's important to Paul. He'll get into that more as we go deeper into the book of Romans. If you want to find the gospel, you should search the scriptures. So the authority comes from scripture, from God's revelation of himself. And what is the gospel about? Paul says, the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, his son Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that for Paul, merely proclaiming the story of Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. When we think about the gospel, sometimes there are a lot of abstractions that go along with it. But for Paul, in its simplest form, the gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to understand the gospel deeply, you just need to understand Jesus deeply. You just need to know more about Jesus. If you don't get the gospel, it's because you don't get Jesus. So proclaiming Jesus is what's essential, and that's what he does. His son who was descended from David according to the flesh. That phrase, according to the flesh, has a parallel, according to the spirit of holiness in the next phrase. So we're meant to understand there's like a one-two punch here. According to the flesh, Jesus, in other words, was fully human. Right? Theologians look at this and they say, here's a statement of the, the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was fully human according to the flesh and descended from David. Now, that's important in terms of Messiahship because the important thing to know about Jesus isn't just that he's fully human, but also that he is the Messiah, that he's the heir of David, like the one who was foretold, who would sit on the throne of David. So that's important to know about Jesus, that he is according to the flesh, descended from King David. So he's the one those Old Testament prophets pointed to. Descent from David points to his human kingship. But he was also declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. So where we had kind of a glimpse of Jesus' humanity, here we get a glimpse of his divinity. But more than that, Classically, sometimes historians, theologians would look at these phrases of Paul's and the parallel in them, and they would interpret them as sort of a a statement of the doctrine of Christ, so an emphasis on his full humanity, he's fully God, followed by an emphasis on his full divinity, he is fully, sorry, fully man, fully God, fully God, fully man. So that's Christology. But Paul is doing more than that, right? Jesus didn't become the Son of God. At some point in history, he was declared the son of God at some point in history. He was always, from the standpoint of the Trinity, he was always the son of God. But he was always fully divine. That's not something that happened to him in history. But something did happen to him in history. He was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. So Jesus, his incarnation, he comes into the world He's fully God, he becomes fully human, and then something happens as a result of which he is now declared 
to be what he is, declared in power according to the spirit of holiness. That phrase, according to the spirit of holiness, speaks to the spiritual power of his kingdom, that his is a kingdom of the spirit. But the event that the declaration proceeds from is his resurrection. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The historical event that it all hinges on, the thing that the point in history that the gospel hinges on is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In hindsight, once Jesus has done this work that he's come to do, he has lived this life, he has sacrificed that life on the cross, and he has been raised from the dead, then, then he is declared in power to be the Son of God. He is declared to be the King who was prophesied to come. He's given this power. That's the way it works. After victory, he's declared king. He comes, he achieves that triumph over sin and death, and then he is exalted. So what Paul is speaking about here isn't just Jesus's full humanity and full divinity. He's also pointing us to a history of humiliation and exaltation that Jesus humbled himself according to the flesh. He became fully human in order to be that heir of David. He accomplished the work that he was sent to accomplish, and because of that, he has been exalted. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is Christ, our Lord. That's the Jesus that the gospel is all about. Those are the events that the gospel is all about. But what does that gospel do? Those are historical facts. Those are things about Jesus. But what does Jesus actually accomplish? What changes as a result of this gospel? Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And here the we is uh, kind of that royal we. It's the way the queen would speak when she's referring to herself. Paul is referring to himself here, but the grace that he's received and the apostleship that he's received, and he seems to be distinguishing between the two. He's already talked about being called to be an apostle, but here he's talking about the grace he's received, the grace of salvation. It is not just his office that he sees as God-given as a result of calling. It's also the salvation the grace that he has received has been received through Christ. So there's an emphasis in the way Paul thinks about these things, an emphasis on the work of God above whatever man does. It's not about works. It's about something more than works. It's about grace. We've received grace and apostleship for a reason, he says, and the reason is to bring about the obedience of faith. Sometimes when you read a phrase like that, the obedience of faith, and realize he's talking about your walk of faith, it seems like a weird way to talk about it. If salvation is by grace and not by works, then it's not about obedience. Surely, it's about something else. It's about faith, which is true. But Paul refers to that faith as the obedience of faith, recognizing that a consequence of faith is indeed obedience. In fact, that the only way to be obedient as we were called to be is through faith. So Paul doesn't set aside the idea of obedience, but he does transform it utterly. The obedience that matters is not law-keeping obedience, in other words. Law-keeping 
being a good person, that's not going to be enough. That kind of obedience will never give you what grace gives you. Obedience can only be motivated out of gratitude. It can only be powered by the power of the Spirit. So not law-keeping obedience, but faith obedience. The obedience that comes through faith is what the gospel is doing. The gospel is transforming us, is giving us the ability to obey by faith because we failed at any other kind of obedience. But honestly, it's not about us. It's not about, first and foremost, our salvation. It's not about making sure that we aren't condemned. There's a higher motive here that Paul sees. He says it is for the sake of his name. This is for the sake of his name, not for the sake of of your well-being, although that's part of it, a much lower part. But mostly it's for the sake of his name. It's for his glory, in other words. Ultimately, the goal of, of the gospel ministry of reconciliation is cosmic. That what God is doing in Christ, he's doing to glorify himself. He's doing to show his greatness in order to show the, the love and the care that he has. It's much greater than just us, much greater than you and me. It includes us but it gathers us into something much greater than ourselves, which is the task of bringing glory to him for the sake of his name, not just for the sake of his name among the Jews, but Paul says to all nations, among all the nations. And the nations here is a way of referring to the Gentiles, all the nations of the world, all of the Gentiles. This is the huge mystery that is going to be revealed in Paul's gospel, that God from the beginning has intended not the salvation of just one ethnic group, but of the world. Every tribe, every kindred, every nation will be gathered, but God will save people from all of them. You see in Revelation chapter 5, including you, Paul says, including the Romans, including you, We're called to belong to Jesus Christ. He moves from the cosmic to the deeply personal. He doesn't emphasize the cosmic to exclude the personal, but just to orient it so that we see it's about something much larger than us, and yet it includes us. It is about us because we were called to belong to Jesus Christ. So who are we in Christ? What is our identity? Paul speaks to the Romans. He, he names them. He says who he's writing his letter to. He says he's writing it to all those who are in Rome. Not just to the Jews in Rome, but to all who are in Rome. The church in Rome, as you can imagine, has kind of overstepped those ordinary bounds. It includes Jews and Gentiles. The Spirit is at work in this mysterious and from the outside probably very chaotic looking way. Yet Paul is writing to them all. Paul is writing to that, that diverse chaotic community that's great in faith, but maybe not in understanding at this point. He's writing to them all together as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And he tells them what that means. To be called to belong is to be loved by God. To all those who are in Rome who are loved by God. But the work of salvation that the gospel is about is a demonstration of God's love for you. He does this because he loves you. You are loved by God, and Paul says, called to be saints. So again, the love is shown through the divine calling. 
So again, a parallel. At the beginning, Paul is emphasizing his own calling, his divine calling, and that's where the authority comes from. But now, as he speaks to his audience, as he speaks to us, he says, you too are called. You are called to belong. You are called to be saints. You too are subject to this divine calling. It isn't just me. It's also you that he is gathering in love. And then finally, in his opening sort of blessing to them, he's telling them what they can expect from the gospel, what it is the gospel does. Called to be saints, and then you have this little colon here. Because remember, this is just the opening to a letter. It's just sort of a, I'm Paul, dear Romans, and then the body of the letter. It just took us a while to get there. Now we have the colon, and this is the opening of the letter, the sort of opening word to the Romans. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like he's saying two things. He wants you to have two things. He wants you to have grace and also to have a little peace as well. But grace and peace go together in Paul's mind. These are two things that are connected Grace and peace, grace is a means to peace. The peace that Paul is talking about, it cannot be achieved except through grace. Peace, as Paul is speaking of it, is is, uh, the concept that in the Old Testament is referred to as shalom. Shalom. And it's not just peace in the sense of uh, end of strife. You know, that once you've, you've gone to war and you've spent a few years utterly annihilating your enemy, when you're really exhausted by that, you can declare peace. And then you'll be at peace, just meaning you can stop killing people for a while. That's not peace in the sense of shalom. Shalom is something more than that. Shalom is a kind of uh, ordered harmony between you and the world around you. An ordered harmony between you and the God who made you. It's not just the absence of conflict, as much as a relief as that can be, but it's the restoration of of the right relationship between you and everything around you. It's like putting back together the pieces that are broken, making things the way they are meant to be. But to talk about that kind of peace, to talk about that that full restoration, that shalom, Paul is also going to have to talk about its opposite. And in the opening chapters of Romans, we'll see him him making the case for the opposite of shalom. You can't understand what ordered harmony looks like until you've spent a little bit of time meditating on the disordered disharmony that characterizes the human condition. It's the reason why you could start at the beginning of the book of Romans and keep reading, and you get to the part at the, towards the, the middle of this chapter where he talks about the wrath of God revealed against sin, then he's going to give us catalogs of the sins of the Gentiles, then he's going to switch to the sins of the Jews, and you think, man, this guy's really obsessed with sin. He's a super judgmental sort of apostle. But the reality is you've got to keep going because we've got to understand the nature of sin before we can understand the totality of peace as it is promised in the gospel. The Scottish Presbyterian theologian John Murray writes that the Pauline concept of peace cannot be understood except on the background of the alienation from God, which sin has involved. Hence, peace is the reconstituted favor with God based upon the reconciliation accomplished by Christ. 
It's only as we appreciate the implications of alienation from God and the reality of the wrath which alienation evinces that we can understand the richness of the biblical notion of peace. Peace means the establishment of a status of which confident and unrestrained access to the presence of God is the privilege. When we talk about being able to come into God's presence and to worship him uh, with, with carefree hearts, to worship him fully, we're talking about that kind of peace. The idea that as, as sinful as we are, as unworthy as we are, that we could boldly enter the presence of a holy God and ask him for the things that we want, you can only do that if you're living under this umbrella of peace that Paul is talking about. If you are in some sense experiencing a foretaste of this shalom where the relationship between you and God, between you and the world has been repaired, has been restored. If uh, Murray is too systematic for you, I like the way that uh, a more mystical author, Julian of Norwich, talks about this idea of shalom. Julian of Norwich was a medieval Christian mystic. She wrote a book called The Revelations of Divine Love, where she grappled with this idea of the way that sin separates us from God and how God brings us back together. It's somewhat archaic because it's medieval, but but I think there's something beautiful in this uh, understanding. She writes, after this, the Lord brought to my mind the longing that I had to him afore, and I saw that nothing hindered me but sin. And so I looked generally upon us all, and I thought, if sin had not been, we should all have been clean and like to our Lord as he made us. For the tender love that our good Lord hath to all that shall be saved, he comforteth readily and sweetly, signifying thus. And here she imagines God speaking. It is true that sin is cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said full tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any that shall be saved. Then were it a great unkindness to blame or wonder on God for my sin, since he blameth not me for sin. And in these words, I saw a marvelous high mystery hid in God, which mystery he shall openly make known to us in heaven, in which knowing we shall truly see the cause why he permitted sin to come, which sight we shall endlessly joy in our Lord God. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. To the person in sin, To the person broken by sin, God speaks those words of assurance, of comfort, of wellness. All will be well. You see the brokenness inside you. And God says all will be well. That's the promise of shalom. That as broken as it seems, as impossible as it seems, to restore those relationships, God will do it. And that the sin that you have committed will not be held against you. The gospel will confront us about our sin, and that can make us uncomfortable. But there is no way to peace without first confronting sin. These words were said full tenderly, Julian writes, showing no manner of blame to me nor to any that shall be saved. Then were it a great unkindness to blame or wonder on God for my sin, since he blameth not me for sin. He blameth not me.
people, when they try to put their finger on the culture that we live in now, there's a term that is sometimes used to describe our moment. You've probably heard them say that we live in in a call-out culture. In other words, for your social sins, for your transgressions, if you say the wrong thing, you're likely to be called out over it. Depending on what you've said or what you've done, you might be called out and have enormous consequences. Like uh, Great judgment comes upon you. People do bad things in society, and in the name of justice, even the slightest transgressions can be punished in very absolute ways. You say the wrong thing, and you could lose your job. You could lose your friends. You could be alienated from society, from culture. And, and those of us who are older, who remember different times, look at this and think, well, something is wrong with the world. It shouldn't work this way. Where, where, how did we get here? But there's a parallel, I think, a parallel that, that sometimes goes unacknowledged. This idea that, that even for the slightest error, for the slightest sin, just for, for saying the wrong thing or, or even just thinking the wrong thing, you could suddenly have like this heavy weight of judgment come down upon you and crush you. If you ask a lot of people, they would say, that sounds like you're describing Christianity. Because Christians are the people who believe that for the slightest little infraction, for the tiniest little sin, maybe you didn't even do anything, but you just hold uh, like a bad opinion that you deserve condemnation, that you should be judged for that, that you could deserve eternal punishment because you thought wrongly about something. That's exactly what people see in Christianity, a kind of ultimate call-out culture where no one No one will get away with anything. And even the slightest thing will lead to the destruction of everything. There is some truth to that. It just doesn't go far enough. It's true as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough into the gospel. It gets the condemnation, but it misses the hope. It's necessary to come to terms with the level of condemnation in order to appreciate the level of hope. But the gospel does call us out. The gospel does call us out. The gospel doesn't think it's okay to just say whatever you want to say, do whatever you want to do. Hey, who who are we to judge? The gospel judges. But it does more than that. It does more than just bring about condemnation. It acknowledges a condemnation. But it brings about hope. It gives us hope. The gospel calls us out, but not in that sense, not in the sense of of, of shame, not in the sense of humiliation and punishment. It calls us out of the condemnation that it found us in and calls us into the body of Christ. It calls us into the freedom of Christ. The gospel calls us out of our sin and into forgiveness. It reveals the judgment that we deserve only to set that judgment aside in love. Christ calls us out of condemnation. He calls us to belong to him. He calls us to shalom, a peace that we do not deserve and could never earn, never build on our own. Paul writes to the Romans and he says to us that this is why Jesus came. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected so that we can die to the condemnation and live new life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Live in peace with God and in peace with one another and in peace with the world that God made. That is the promise 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.